Hey, girlfriend, it's time for Can We Just Talk About This? Where real talk meets real life in the world of fitness and health during perimenopause. I'm nutrition, strength, and hormone coach Corey Jackson, and I'm chatting with my brilliant friend, coach and exercise physiologist Dr. Mandy Para. Whether you're in your 50s like me or your 30s like Mandy, we're here to navigate the ever-evolving journey of life, motherhood, and perimenopause together. So pull up a seat, get comfy, and let's talk about this. Hey, girlfriend. Today, we're talking about hormones, specifically our sex hormones, specifically estrogen and progesterone and the phases of the menstrual cycle. I put Mandy on the hot seat and asked her a variety of questions that I've been curious about. So knowing her passions and professional experience in research, she takes us through the typical pattern of the female hormone cycle without complications such as hormone dysregulation that comes from conditions like PCOS or life transitions like perimenopause. We decided to start our three-part series on hormones here because it's important to know what's going on under the hood, so to speak. It's also empowering to know what is going on in different phases of your cycle. And finally, knowing your cycle's pattern, because it's individual for different people, knowing the pattern before perimenopause starts will help you recognize the menopause transition for what it is because you know you're in it, and you'll be less prone to chase other possible causes of the symptoms. Regarding progesterone, Mandy points out that there is actually very little research at this point on it in comparison to the mounting work done on estrogen, but it's still a big player, and we should be aware of how we feel physically and mentally when it is predominant in the cycle. Next week, We'll look a little closer at how the cycle changes with perimenopause and how to adapt and change your lifestyle with it. And in our third part, we'll look at how exogenous hormones, or those you take in birth control or hormone replacement therapy, impact your menstrual cycle. Our goal is to empower you with knowledge so you don't have to question or doubt yourself at different phases of your cycle or in your life, and to help you hold space and grace through the ebbs and flows of your hormonal milieu. All right, let's get to it. Hello, let's talk about it. (laughs) Hello, happy to be back with you. I'm enjoying so much our conversations. It's just a a point of connection and an opportunity to chat with you, Mandy, and hopefully it's enjoyable for our audience to listen in and maybe they hear themselves talking back to us. That would be fun. I know I do it all the time. (laughs) Yes. I would love that. (laughs) So today we want to discuss something that I feel should be part of our health education in sixth and seventh grade. Everyone goes to their school assembly to learn about their changing bodies and to know that you're going to have a period soon, but we don't necessarily talk through the entire cycle, all the phases of the cycle. I know that for the longest time, the main thing I knew was that I've bled generally almost once a month and in generally the same time, but I didn't really understand what was going on under the hood, so to speak with all Mm -hmm. with my sex hormones. And I didn't really take the time to research it 
until I started noticing signs and symptoms of perimenopause. Um, so I would like to back the truck up a little bit and let's talk about what the standard pre-menopausal cycle is. And we'll use that as a framework, you know, because we're going to be talking about the hormone cycle and the menstrual cycle for the next three weeks. Um, since you are the researcher and the expert, I thought that it would be wonderful if I could ask you questions and you in your ability to break things down for a class could <laughs> Classes in session. Let's let's All talk right. about Classes it. In let's do it. <laughs> so, I have heard the term "your cycle, your superpower." If we could actually live our lives according to our cycle, we would probably feel more powerful, more liberated. Instead of dreading our period and dreading the changes in our hormones, understanding them would actually help us to use them. If you could please break down the phases of the cycle and which hormones are dominant when. Sure. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of ways to look at this. We can look at it in the most simplistic form, which may be a, an easy format for our audience to understand, or we can break it down in a, a deeper form. But let's start simple and we can go more complex if we want to. Kind of 10,000 foot view of the cycle. If we think about ovulation is smack dab right in the middle of this sucker. And we talk about, we'll say 28 day cycle just to make it easy to digest. But Understanding that this cycle can flux about plus or minus seven days is a good way to think about it. But for simplicity's mm -hmm. sake, let's just pretend like we're sitting um, right at 28 days. Day 14 is going to be ovulation. We think about then the first half, days one up to 14, would be the follicular phase where day zero is going to be that first day of bleeding or first day of menstruation. Depending on how many days you bleed, all of those things, we move forward in the follicular phase. And so all of that first half of the cycle is the follicular phase. And we're seeing some fluctuations in hormones throughout that phase. So the first hormone that we're going to see um, rise. So estrogen is going to start low at the beginning, and then we're going to see it gradually rise and take a peak in your actual full cycle. It takes a peak right there, right before, right during ovulation. And so we'll talk a little deeper about what all these hormones mean and why and where they all, how they can affect us in different ways in a little bit. But let's just understand that first half of the cycle. Again, you have early follicular. If we get deeper into it, we take follicular, we can it into early follicular and late follicular. Early follicular, we're going to call that menstruation phase when you're bleeding. And then late follicular, we're going to see estrogen dominate the cycle in there. And then remember our midpoint, um, our ovulation day is 14. And now we move on to the back half of the cycle. And in the back half of the cycle, we're going to see a little dip in estrogen. It's called the luteal. You'll also hear people say the luteal phase, depending on how you want to pronounce it. So <laughs> I say luteal. So in that luteal phase, we'll see a little dip in estrogen. And then we see estrogen come up just a little bit more and then finish out the cycle and dip back down towards the very end, towards that 28 day, we see it drop back off in order um, for us to start menses. The other hormone that we want to talk about and that really think about predominates the backside of the cycle is progesterone. And so progesterone is going to come up and rise towards the back half of the cycle. 
And then estrogen as well towards the back half of the cycle will come up, not quite as high as progesterone. And then they both fall off towards the end and we're back at it on the first half of the cycle again. Okay. Okay. That's great. I've heard of it a good illustration is the estrogen and progesterone are twin sisters and estrogens <laughs> in her little pink dress and progesterone's in her blue dress and they're on a seesaw. And, uh-huh. um, during the first half of the cycle, you hear that estrogen is very active, not necessarily hyperactive, but active and strong and risk-taking and is really interested in doing fun things. She talks a lot. She dances a lot, all the things. And then but progesterone is asleep during the mm-hmm. first half of the cycle. And then suddenly at uh, ovulation, progesterone wakes up and she tends to be the balance to estrogen. She helps estrogen make better choices. So she keeps her calm and she also helps her estrogen take a nap. <laughs> you know, the, I like that. The, okay. So th- th- that explains why we're sleepier during the luteal phase. As some people notice that. I know that I have noticed, and I guess since my 30s, that I tend to sleep worse during the second half of my cycle. There are obviously individual differences and that's what we'll be getting to. But what about other hormones? Where is estrogen and progesterone? Where are they produced in the body? Oh, estrogen and progesterone. So we see a lot of um, our hormones produced um, in the pituitary. So it's the anterior pituitary. You'll have to remind me of these. Um, anterior <laughs> pituitary. And really, they're stimulated um, by um, that luteinizing hormone and the follicle-stimulating stim- hormone, hormone. FSH. <laughs> FSH and luteinizing hormone. And so those are the guys that really trigger, especially the rise in progesterone towards the end of the cycle. But we always want to remember that hormones are pulsatile. So we see them secreted in different phases during this cycle. But we also want to think that there is a lot of positive feedback and then negative feedback associated with these hormones. So they all cascade off of each other, which really, I think when we think about hormone dysfunction, and hormone dysregulation, they feed off each other in such a strong way that they can, just a disruption in one can really give a disruption in the full um, hormonal cycle. Okay. Break that down a little bit. What exactly do you mean by the pulsatile nature of the menstrual cycle? So when we think about pulsatile nature, then we want to think about how hormones, they have different kind of levels where they rise and they fall throughout the menstrual cycle. We think of it like a flow. It's like a wave that we're riding every 28 days. And we're going to see hormones that come higher and we're going to see hormones that come lower. And we're riding this wave of estrogen is high, progesterone is low. And then, you know, again, towards the backside, progesterone is high, but estrogen is also coming and going. They're coming in regular intervals, but they're coming in intervals throughout that full 28-day cycle. Whereas we think about hormones like cortisol and things like that cascade a little more on a daily cycle, these hormones fluctuate and come and go in that kind of 28-day full kind of large window, which I think is something really special for females, Mm -hmm. right? And we discussed this just a little bit before how we run on a longer cycle. And you're sharing a little bit of some of the things that you've been reading lately on the differences between kind of males and females and how we function. 
Yeah. The, one of the things that really struck me when I first started diving into all of this is how men tend to run, obviously testosterone is the male main predominant sex hormone. And while females also have testosterone is definitely in micro amounts compared to men, but they, the testosterone cycle is more of a 24 hour cycle. And it's, interesting to me to see that so much of our society, our working society, school, um, all of these different things seem to be built along that 24-hour cycle. Testosterone is high in the morning and uh, motivation is high in the morning and uh, they're able to focus and get things done and get things, uh, get the ball punted and get started on their day. And then there's a certain time during the day that they do better talking to people and having meetings. And then later on in the day, as testosterone wanes, they, they shut down for the day and they go to happy hour or whatever. What I just described is everybody's business day. So the world is based on the male hormone pattern, whereas it would probably be hard to run an entire business on a 28-day cycle, like we're describing here. But if women could actually use their cycle to guide their functions in work and in life and in workouts, which we'll get into later, then it seems that we'd be able to accomplish more. And instead of fighting our cycle, if we accepted our cycle and lived as women, as we are created to live, then we would live better. Yeah. Uh, I I think that's an important point. I think that kind of that's where we're getting at today is really understanding the nature of these hormones and understanding them and getting to know them just a little bit and then getting to know how those hormones may affect different physiological processes and even sometimes cognitive processes, right? And when we can understand that, sometimes I feel like it's a little easier to recognize within yourself when you start to say, okay, I realize that I'm foggy brain today. Based on where my cycle is, that makes sense. And so maybe I should just accept that and say, hey, that's okay for today. And tomorrow is going to be better. You know, maybe if I just waited out three more days and I'm going to have a little bit more clarity, things like that. I think once you get acquainted with yourself at this level, it's definitely not an excuse, but I think it's a better understanding of yourself um, and humanizing yourself and your physiological processes. It's my understanding that less estrogen or estradiol, which is our main estrogen component, is needed than progesterone to do its function. So if you look at different graphs, there's more, there are more units per liter of blood of, est- of progesterone to do their work than there are of estrogen. Now, is that a function of the hormone's potency or the system's sensitivity? I looked and looked at this because we were talking about this in the show notes beforehand. And really, I don't know that there's a good explanation for for why. So we when we usually measure in all the graphs that you see online or any of the fluctuations of hormones that you see throughout the cycle, you'll usually see if they even label progesterone and estrogen, you'll see progesterone on the y-axis usually to the right and mm-hmm. estrogen on the y-axis to the left. So mm-hmm. it's really helpful, I think, to understand that when you're seeing those high highs in estrogen and you're seeing those high highs in progesterone, it looks like progesterone doesn't reach the same level as estrogen when actually uh, progesterone is in picograms, usually measured, and um, estrogen is usually measured in nanograms. 
So when we think about it in that aspect, we're actually seeing a lot more progesterone in the system than we are estrogen in the system. And you're right, per liter of blood. But I don't know that there's a clear explanation for that. Estrogen has a really high um, antioxidant effect in the body, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. And estrogen works on receptors throughout the entire body. So we're learning even still that there are estrogen receptors in the muscle, in cardiac muscle, I mean, in all over the place that, that it can be utilized. But I really don't know that there's a full explanation other than we have that positive feedback loop between estrogen, follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, and progesterone that all work in concert. And then progesterone actually works in a negative feedback loop to come back around and stimulate estrogen. So we see positive feedback all the way down to a negative feedback loop that keeps this cycle turning And again, I just don't know, or there's not one to my knowledge that actually says this is why we have more of of this and less of the other. Have you come across anything that would say different? Really, no. That's that's part of what I was really curious about this. But going back to issue, Mm -hmm. there there are estrogen receptors all over the body. There are several in the brain, in every system of the brain, which explains brain fog when estrogen starts declining. Um, But you don't hear about progesterone receptors all over the body. Um, And also, since progesterone is predominant in the back half, after we've produced that egg, does that, is progesterone mainly concerned with pregnancy, driving pregnancy, protecting pregnancy? And if that's the case, is it just work on the reproductive system? I don't know if it's just, if it only targets the reproductive system, because we hear more about estrogen and its responsibility throughout the life cycle, because we definitely know when estrogen is gone, right? When estrogen decreases in the body during perimenopause and then further decreases with the end of the menstrual cycle in full menopause, we definitely feel the effects in the body. Progesterone doesn't decline um, as rapidly as estrogen. Um, and I don't know that it is as as needed as estrogen is in the body unless you have right a dysregulation dysfunction. So if your estrogen and progesterone are out of ratio throughout your menstrual cycle, that's something that you'll definitely um, notice as well. Again, because they have a feedback relationship. And so um, they will definitely talk back and forth. So beyond that, um, the biggest responsibility of progesterone is um, thickening the uterine lining. And then when progesterone declines, the body says, oh, I see, I'm not pregnant. We can move on. We get to start the feedback all over again and we get to start our cycle and go back to day zero. So I think the, the fun thing that I get to say as a scientist, and I get to say this actually more than you would think, is I don't know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's, I think that being able to say I don't know just opens so many doors of possibility <laughs> to be able to explore and to research and to continue digging because that's the fun part of it, right? That's the whole point of science. That's right. That's the scientific (laughs) inquiry right there is, wait, Mm. I don't know the answer to this. Let's go find it. And so I think we're still in that big discovery phase with all of these hormones. And we'll talk a little more about some of the newer research on estrogen and all of the places that it can be utilized. And this stuff is still pretty fresh. 
And mm-hmm. so we're learning so much more about women right now. So it's an exciting time to, to be digging into the literature, yeah. asking those why questions. Yeah, yeah. We've talked a lot about estrogen and progesterone. And I did mention that we do have testosterone, albeit in smaller amounts. And this, this isn't one of our planned questions, but could you talk to the role that testosterone plays in the female menstrual cycle? Yes. So I know if you, I know that testosterone does play a role. It plays a very small role. It's one of our, our sex hormones that's produced within the ovaries, just like progesterone and, and estrogen, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone from the pituitary stimulate those two hormones, progesterone and estrogen from the ovaries. And, and testosterone is the same way. It has a, again, a much smaller role because estrogen acts more like our testosterone in a female. We need a little bit in order to continue to function. And depending on different situations, estrogen can actually turn into testosterone in certain situations and it can be aromatized back and forth. So Mm -hmm. I think it's important to remember it just plays a very small role in our overall libido and overall well-being. Again, if it's very low, you'll definitely notice. But also in females, if it's very high, you notice really quickly too, hair growth in places that you don't want to grow hair. You sometimes can feel the effects of a higher testosterone ratio. Again, I think it's important to remember that all these hormones play a role together and we need to remember that to keep them all in proper ratio. Yeah, yeah, that's, that makes perfect sense. So back to progesterone and the luteal Mm -hmm. phase, why do we seem less resilient to stress in the back half of the cycle? Oh my gosh, there's so many reasons for this. When we think about the back half of the cycle and again, the decline of estrogen, I think that you're more so feeling on the back half of the cycle, right? That luteal phase, I think you're more so feeling the decline of estrogen more than the increase in progesterone. So remember that estrogen has that antioxidant effect on the body. It protects, and again, receptors everywhere. It's Mm. very protective. It has a protective effect. So it's going to help you recover from exercise faster. It's going to help with sleep. It's going to help with neurological function. It's going to help with cardiac function. We see progesterone, and again, on the back half of the cycle, rising with a lot of other things. I was listening earlier to, to a researcher, Catherine Ackerman, who is a wonderful researcher and scientist at Boston Children's Hospital. And she was talking about a study where they actually gave males progesterone. And oh. I, I don't know what wonderful males volunteered for this, but I'm very right. grateful. So they noticed some of the things that we notice when progesterone is high. And especially when progesterone is high during pregnancy, when you start to get shorter breath, you start Mm -hmm. to feel some cardiorespiratory effects of a higher progesterone, sleep suffered, all kinds of physiological actions. And the same ones that we see, they saw. It was validating, I would say, for females who were like, man, we feel crummy when progesterone is high. There's a reason. Okay. There is a reason. That is fascinating. Catherine Ackerman. Yes, Catherine Ackerman. If you haven't looked up her research, she's one of the leaders in in clinical research for female athletes specifically. So Mm -hmm. I would say Catherine Ackerman and then Abby Smith Ryan is another one of my favorites and a good friend of mine out of UNC Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. And they both do wonderful studies. Um, Katie Hirsch is another one that does a great job. Um, now she's at South Carolina. 
So these women are, are really leading the, the call. And again, we don't know probably enough about progesterone yet. We know so much or we're learning more every day about estrogen. Progesterone, again, is, is one that um, because it doesn't decline as rapidly and it's more abundant in, in female physiology, we just really haven't gotten around to knowing enough about it. That's, that's so interesting. And we will link to the work of all of these researchers in the show notes if anyone wants to take a deeper dive there. Um, now, whenever I was in my 30s in particular, when I was experiencing a raging PMS and mm-hmm. just like long, prolonged PMS, sometimes my husband would say that I'm not having a period, I'm having an ellipsis. It would just continue <laughs> to stutter fun. along. And PMS just made it even longer. So I, I used to joke around that I would have one good week right before I ovulated. And as soon as I ovulated, boom, all of these really weird things start happening to my energy, to my, to my uh, immune system. I would it feels like I was getting sick every single month. And that started when I first started cycling. But what I was always drawn to during that time was actual progesterone support. So I would use wild yam cream as a, mm-hmm. a natural progesterone supplement. And it it would take the edge off, but it didn't necessarily solve all the problems. And it's just so fascinating to me that there is like this entire half of the month for more than half of the population that is predominated by a hormone that we don't know enough about. Oh yeah. (laughs) So um, I'm interested in following along as we learn more about that. Yeah. So am I. We are learning so much though about how our sex hormones impact every other system. Like we've already mentioned a few times, there are estrogen receptors on every single system, every single organ. Um, And, and, It's interesting that there is um, so much impact of our sex hormones on everything and not just our reproductive systems, Um, including the musculoskeletal system. I'm wondering, are there times during the cycle when we respond better to different types of exercise? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say that the answer is still, we don't know. I don't know for sure. There, You could look up several articles right now and you would see results all over the board. So if we put together a meta-analysis, I think the meta-analysis would say, yeah, we think there's a better time, but it wouldn't say completely. And I would say this for several reasons. As a researcher, um, it's my job not only to look at the results of these clinical trials and results of these research studies, but it's my job to really dive really deep into the methodology and the Mm -hmm. methods of how they conducted these studies. And, you know, in the past 10 years, we've gotten much better at collecting and disseminating research. But I would say that some of the, the earlier studies there, the menstrual cycle is still wasn't well enough understood, wasn't controlled for well enough. You've got contraceptive users of all different mm-hmm. kinds lumped in with normal eumenorrheic women. You've got some that their cycles are, are way too long and erratic. You've just got too many factors, and we just didn't know enough about how to drill down into the menstrual cycle to research it. We've also got the human kind of interaction here where sometimes girls don't track their cycle. Sometimes they use a plan B and don't want to tell you. Sometimes they 
There's so many things that happen during research and just with human subjects that makes it hard, which is why it's much easier sometimes to use rats, right? Ah, yeah. (laughs) Research. Makes sense. Yes. When we think about those things, again, we've gotten better at it. The bulk of the research or the research is trending in a direction that says that the late follicular phase is really one of the better times to, to resistance train, that time when the estrogen is the very highest. You're going to get a better recovery effect. You're probably strongest in that phase. And one of the best studies that I've seen out, and I couldn't tell you who's the author on that one, but it, it stated that the, that late follicular phase was one of the best for adaptations. So okay. they took females across the menstrual cycle. They gave them the exact same training regimen. They supplemented them with protein post-workout, all of them, which is huge as well because we know as females, most are low in protein. And these were college-aged females. And so they put them through the workout, all in different phases of the menstrual cycle. And what they had found is that late follicular phase seemed to give the best adaptation overall Hmm. to Mm -hmm. resistance training exercise. Now, more research is coming out. We have another new study from Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan's lab that showed there were no differences in power across menstrual cycle. And can't remember all of the other factors that she looked at, but several. Um, mm-hmm. So things to consider. And are we looking for just overall, are we looking at muscular strength? Do we need, is it muscular hypertrophy? Are we looking to just grow muscle size? Are we looking at muscular power? Are we looking at cardiovascular endurance? There's so many things to consider when you just want a blanket and everybody wants to write an easy take-home message. And there's not really an easy take-home message yet. But I would say if there were one, it would say that we are trending towards thinking that the late follicular phase may be your best time, that you feel the best, that you're going to train better, that um, you may be just a little bit stronger, which in the end, if you can train hard in that season, then you can increase adaptation overall. Okay. Okay. Just going off of that, because that is so fascinating to me. We know that when you're in the real world and you're working with a client or working with me, if I'm working Mm -hmm. with myself, there are a couple of things that play into your fitness gains. And one of those is ritual, routine, habit. I can go to the gym Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. This is when I have that time available. And also the other piece is frequency. We know that Mm -hmm. our bodies respond better the more times we give it the signal to to adapt and to respond. So what if my body is prime with hormones to respond best to resistance training at just this one window, say a four to five day window, what does it do to routine and to frequency? What do you think about that? So one of my my favorite recommendations for females right now is looking more towards an autoregulatory approach to training, which autoregulatory training is a new type of training. It was produced by Brian Mann, who's a strength and conditioning coach. He's out of Missouri. And what he's found in this particular training style is that for a very kind of short explanation, when you feel good, you train harder. When you don't feel as good, you don't train as hard. And we want to train to our level of performance, our highest level of performance every day, right? It's one of those, you always want to walk into the gym and do your best, but your best is going to change day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour. 
depending on so many physiological factors, just depending on how hydrated you are during the day, you're going to increase or decrease performance. So I would say we want to think about it in a term of you're going to undulate throughout your cycle of when you feel good and when you feel bad. But those days that you feel good may correlate to the days in your cycle when your estrogen is the highest. And so when all of those factors align, you go in there and squat the house, baby. Like (laughs) go in there and deadlift until you die. Like feel good, train hard, get heavy. And then on the days that you are not feeling 100%, your 100% has changed. Let's say that. Your 100% is not the same 100% threshold that you were at the day before or the week before. Train to that threshold now. And it might be that your best that day, the heaviest that you can eke out is 20 pounds lower in your back squat than the week before when you were in the late follicular phase. But still stimulate the muscle, train heavy, work hard in the gym, and then come out, get a really good recovery, and try again the next day. I think remembering muscle stimulus, so we want to stimulate the muscle. Again, same thing with cardiovascular exercise. You want to get your cardiovascular training in, and you want to keep yourself comfortable so that you'll continue to come back. But always play to your strengths throughout your cycle and then throughout your week. So um, basically what you're saying is keep the routine and and definitely get get into the gym and do the stuff. But instead of feeling like you have to best your best every single time, recognizing that um, it doesn't work that way, it's not linear, go back to the grace conversation, have have grace for yourself in those days that maybe you can compare your performance that week to that week last month. And and maybe you can make um, gains as far as that goes. Yes, I totally, I'm on board with that for sure. I'm going to have to try it. That's in my training journal. (laughs) Okay. How about nutrition? We know that cravings, our body can crave different things at different times of the month. So we know this just by personal experience. I think that every single woman can probably say there are days that I need bread or there are days that I need chocolate. There's, there are things that you have to have and nothing else will satisfy it. And we, but we've talked the last two weeks about how to nourish our bodies. Is that, does that look different at different times of the side of the cycle you think? Oh, for sure. It's going to look a lot different through different phases of the menstrual cycle. And here's again where I want to say I would use this again as an understanding of physiology to give yourself a little more grace, as we talked about, or give yourself a little more wiggle room. So when we think about your overall nutrition plan, it's really important if you're no matter what you're doing to be consistent as possible, right? So if I'm trying to gain lean mass, it's really important to be very consistently hitting at maintenance calories or above maintenance calories so that I have enough fuel for protein synthesis. So it's really important to continue to eat enough. If I'm looking for a weight loss situation, I want to keep right protein really high and I can continue to be in a slight caloric deficit so that I lose body fat. So either way, consistency is key. When I coach clients and when I'm working with someone, I will have conversations about, okay, where are you in your menstrual cycle right now? How are you feeling? Things like that. Now, don't have that conversation every day, but on days when, how's your plan working this week? What's going on? And they say, oh my gosh, I'm starving. <laughs> that That is a big indicator for me because what is that as a coach? You know this, right? 
As a coach, that means they're either burnout, they're working too hard, or my deficit that I've created for them is too much if they are starving. If you're miserable in your diet, your deficit's too high, and we got to pull you up a little bit, which is a great sign. It means your metabolism's running like a champ. So one of the things I ask in that situation is, where are you in your cycle? What are, where are we getting close to? And so if they are in that kind of follicular phase, it's possible that their carbohydrates are too low. So in the follicular phase, we typically see an um, increase in carbohydrate oxidation. So you're going to burn through carbs just a little bit more. You're going to utilize fats a little bit um, less. You're going to use protein just a little bit less, and you're going to burn through carbohydrate utilization at a faster rate. Now, that's likely due to that high increase in estrogen, again, which is upregulating everything, making us feel good, making us train harder, and then making us hungry. And then in the backside of the cycle, so in that luteal phase, we're going to see an increase in fat oxidation. So if your body's fuel utilization is going to prefer fat just a little bit more, it's going to increase a little bit in protein oxidation. It's going to spare carbohydrates just a little bit more. And then we're going to see a lot of an increase in glycogen storages and things like that. And so all of this data that I'm pulling is off of a, a paper, again, out of uh, Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan's uh, camp at Chapel Hill, where they talk about uh, females um, throughout the life cycle and throughout the menstrual cycle. Um, great paper. And again, really helping us take all of the knowledge that we've learned over the past probably 10 or so years and putting it into one really nice piece of literature that you can reference and go back and forth on. So it's a really great read and actually a really easy read, if even if you're not used to reading research. Like the link in the show notes. Yeah, it's a good um, one. So why is it then, if we're using more carbohydrate during the follicular phase, why is it that I want nothing more than carbohydrate? I have to have popcorn or I have to have something that I wouldn't ordinarily crave during the back end of the luteal phase? I think this is an interesting phenomenon. And so my, here's, and this is completely anecdotal and likely non-scientific. I, don't, I haven't seen a paper on this. I have not read anything on it. But what I would speculate, if you will allow me to speculate. Please uh, speculate. My speculation is that towards the end of the cycle, we are thickening the uterine lining in the very end of that luteal phase, right? We're in day 25, 26, 27. We're getting close to day 28 when we finally start bleeding on day zero slash day one. So what's your body about to do? It's about to shed its uterine lining. You are about to have a high-level trauma to the inside of your body. And I don't think that we think about that. I don't think that we think about, we are shedding a full uterine lining. So you would think about this as a, an internal injury that is occurring. And what does the body think? Oh my, I have to store up. I have to get ready. I have to heal. I need enough nutrients to get through this phase here. So in my kind of speculation, I think this is the body getting ready for a, a trauma, a traumatic event that happens every 28 days. And we're trying to get a fuel source together. We're trying to get the body ready to regenerate red blood cells to go through this process and restart our body. Wow. Okay. 
that makes sense. It's so interesting, though, that the body would push us towards something that isn't necessarily uh, nutrient dense. It's more um, quick energy. Um, so it's like it's almost like the same process that, you know, we know that when we don't sleep, our uh, leptin and ghrelin is out of balance and the body is going to push us towards fast energy foods so that we can make it through the day. Um and that's the exact experience that I have during have had during PMS. That's yes. really interesting to me. It seems like we should crave things like steak to, <laughs> to replace the nitrogen and the iron that we'll be losing in the blood that we're shedding. I but, tend to crave those things like during or right after. I tend to like really want that iron and think I need more fat, satisfying, satiating meal towards the middle. And I think that that's our womanhood experience. I think everybody has a little bit different experiences of when they crave certain things. And I also think it probably has a lot to do with your own nutrient profile, but then again, in your own caloric intake, if you're not regularly or you're on a lower carbohydrate diet, you're definitely probably going to over and above crave carbohydrates before that, um, Mm. before that kind of shedding occurs. Mm, Perfect sense. But why do we retain so much water? During the luteal phase, I literally, I could gain five pounds like clockwork every month and then lose it in a week. Isn't that wild? (laughs) It is crazy. It is so so wild, the increase. I don't know per se. I think there are a lot of factors that lead to water retention towards the end of the cycle. Again, I think the body is storing up. It's getting prepared to to shed the uterine lining. Progesterone is going to increase just on its own, it's going to increase some water retention. It also has an interesting relationship with aldosterone. And aldosterone mm-hmm. is another hormone that causes water retention, causes okay. kind of sodium uptake. It's going to help us hold on to everything that we have. So I think that understanding too that towards this back half, it's a natural part of the process. Hey, it's time to add some water. Your body's storing things up to use for this physiological process. Mm-hmm. And then Hopefully, once you start your cycle, that water starts to come out. You start to to re-regulate your cycle once progesterone and estrogen, aldosterone will drop with that as well. And hopefully you get through it. But I don't know that there's a full physiological explanation for it or the why. Why do we need all of this uh, sodium water? If so, that's maybe like a more endocrinologist question. But, but yeah, I, I'm not sure the why behind adding sodium, but it's not comfortable. I know that. Oh. <laughs> it's like you have to be able to shop in your closet just to be able to tr- dress your body <laughs> all the time. <laughs> oh, it's true. I, I need the follicular phase and the luteal phase side of my closet. <laughs> just organize it like that. Right? Exactly. <laughs> or you could do like me and just live in leggings because <laughs> I love it. The best. That's those are my work clothes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the life right there. Oh, no kidding. I think just from observation and everything that we've talked about, there's so much about our cycle that is driving biologically towards um making sure that the species carries on, right? A That's lot true. of our biology is geared up towards 
protecting and um, sustaining a pregnancy Mm -hmm. so that, you know, getting all of those resources on deck, like making sure that we, we crave these foods so that we have a little bit of extra energy store to maybe feed a fetus or we're holding extra water and holding onto extra electrolytes to support a blood system for a a developing baby. Whenever we recognize that our bodies aren't fighting us, they are just evolutionarily tuned to um, be able to continue the species. Um, It's much easier to accept the way we're built, the way um, we are plumbed, (laughs) the things that that we, um, as women, this is the way our bodies work. Instead of fighting it, instead of insisting that I fit in my size sixes every single day, every single week, and not giving enough room, enough wiggle room for what our cycles really need. Man, that's huge. It really is. It is so interesting to me that over the past several weeks, we keep coming back to this topic of grace, of understanding and accepting. We brought it up a couple of times here that um, everybody's body is different. And even though we all go through the same kind of cycle, um, same basic um, ebb and flow of hormones, um, it's going to be different and we're going to have different responses to it. I know women, I know female athletes that energy tanks, everything, the systems tank, performance tanks, they can't even get a good breath during that last week or the end of the luteal phase. But as soon as their period starts, day one, they can get a big breath, they can go for a long run and they have that endurance back. Yeah. That wasn't me. <laughs> that was never me. Wow. It took me to like day three or so to be able okay. to get my feet back under me. Mm-hmm. But just knowing that, knowing yourself and knowing your body's needs, I think is a big way to maximize and optimize performance in every area. And I think that's where what we're getting at here is that it's super important to understand your cycle in order for it to be something that you can use to better your life rather than fight against and calling sick every single month. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think that's important. I think that we have to get to this acceptance of loving what is. So this is the way that our bodies are set up. These are the things that our bodies are supposed to do during these times. And I think that if we understand that, obviously there are going to be outliers and I have my cycle doesn't work properly or I'm starting into this perimenopause journey and my cycle is getting longer and I maybe I need some support hormonally through those things. But I think that understanding it is is step one. And I think that our younger generation, so my students, I can ask most of my female students, hey, where are you in your cycle? And they're like, oh, I'm in late follicular right now. I feel great. Or, oh, I'm about to start. I'm about three days away. And I think it's so cool and so important that we're teaching, we're instilling that in most of them. But they know now that, okay, here's where I am in my cycle. This is what I can probably expect. I think a lot of that we can attribute to all of the cycle tracking apps out there and the ways that you can track and know your body better. Mm -hmm. I also think we have to be careful when we do that because I think that it has turned into a gimmick, right? It has Mm -hmm. turned into the next way that we can 
everybody should be doing this workout because this is the way that everybody who has a cycle should exercise and follicular should do this and blah, 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 blah. So I think we have to be careful with blanket recommendations and we have to really start to understand that you can know your cycle better. The better that you know it, the better you can adapt to it, but your cycle is not going to look like anyone else's and your symptoms are not going to look like anyone else's. So I think we have to be careful in blanket recommendations, but we can start to drill down and get very personalized recommendations on how to best run your body in different phases of the cycle. That's so good. That that is so empowering too to understand your cycle, to know where you are in your cycle. And also it's empowering to recognize that your response trumps any kind of blanket recommendation. And so going to the individual and the individual differences is really where all of that leads. I agree. So next up in our three-part series, we will talk about the changes that occur during perimenopause to the cycle. And it's different for everyone, but it is also another opportunity to have grace and another opportunity to find power where it is. Thanks so much for talking about it with me. I sure needed the time we spent together, and I hope it left you feeling good, too. If you enjoyed the episode, please like, subscribe, and share it with your friends to bring other girlfriends into the circle. And hey, let's do it again next week. Episodes drop every Monday, and you might even find a quick chat Friday every now and then. Don't, 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 don't.